0: As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way that we live our lives? How many of us can say that we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestle alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what do these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions that we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Batsoulas, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our life, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello everyone and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible Study, Make His Path Straight. I'm Nick Botzolos and once again I'm happy to have you all here with me on this pre-recorded session because we just finished celebrating the vigil for the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord. So, last week, we talked about Mark chapter 12, and at the end of the chapter, we saw after the whole chapter of Christ going back and forth with the leaders in the temple, the leaders of the city of Jerusalem, we saw this example of a poor widow giving all that she had to the temple, all that she had to her fellow people, of the children of Israel, and This offering of all that she has is echoing the coming passion of Christ. Because in the same vein, Christ is going to offer all that he has. That is, his life for the life of the world. Now, moving on to chapter 13, we're going to see a shift. Uh, This chapter is often referred to as the Apocalypse of Mark. The chapter itself is very eschatological in nature. That is, it, it's dealing with predictions and prophecies, if you will, of the end times. So before we jump into the chapter, I think it's important for us to take some time to talk about eschatology. First of all, what does that word mean? Well, all eschatology means is the study of the end times. So people who study the book of Revelation and various other uh, revelations within the Gospels, as well as the Old Testament, they are in this field of study of eschatology. So whenever we talk about the end times, that is the end of this age, it has this apocalyptic nature to it. Now, if we remember all the way back to when we started this study, of Mark, the gospel account of mark itself is very apocalyptic in nature in that when christ came he brings with he brought with him rather this messianic age so the messianic age again is this fulfillment of creation this reunion of created order in christ and we see that reunification, that reunion taking place in the various acts that Christ does throughout the entire gospel. So whenever he's healing, whenever he's warding off disease, whenever he's liberating people of demons, that is eschatological in nature. That's apocalyptic in nature because he is removing the things of this age. Again, if we remember the motif of this age versus the Messianic age. Uh, he's removing the elements of this age and integrating them, rather, into the messianic age. And along the way, he's inviting all of those who are setting out to follow him into this same age, into the same kingdom. So that's what Christ is doing from the very beginning of his ministry and all throughout his ministry. He's inviting us to par- be participants in this messianic age. And that's important for us to realize because if we've already been talking about an apocalypse, in a sense, uh, destruction of this age, well, then when Christ is making these predictions and he's talking about the coming apocalypse, we'll know already not to be fixated on future dates. And in fact, he's going to spend the entire chapter here telling us to be vigilant but telling us to be vigilant in a sense that isn't being stuck um, on specific details or specific dates or the various things that you hear people bring up whenever there's an apocalypse every couple of years that's predicted so with all of that out of the way I think actually before we move on I think there's one final element that needs to be talked about whenever we're, referring to apocalyptic literature. And it's that the calamity that's spoken of within apocalyptic literature, and we're going to see that very clearly here in chapter 13 of the Gospel according to St. Mark, is simultaneously a calamity that has happened in the past. So we're going to see that the calamity that Christ is predicting here is going to be, well, partially the destruction of the temple. So that is a historical event that happened. The second aspect is the calamity that we all experience in the present. Life has no shortage of heartache. And each and every one of us will have to experience some form of suffering at some point in our life. So the recognition here is that there will be that calamity. That will be that calamity in our present life as well as there is always going to be that coming calamity. There's always going to be that coming hardship that's on the horizon. So whenever we're talking about apocalypses within a scriptural tradition, it's kind of embedded within these three forms. So there's the historical, there's the past apocalypse, that reminds us that, okay, things like shaking up the world happen. Very often throughout history, there's the present calamity that many of us will experience and possibly are experiencing right now. And then there's always the coming calamity as long as we are still existing in this age. Because destruction and calamity and all of these awful things that we talk about, whether it be floods, whether it be earthquakes, you name it, are a result of sin. Uh, which is intrinsic within this age. This age is ruled by evil spirits in the sense, as we've talked about throughout the entire gospel. And if that's the case, well, they're going to do everything that they can to hold on to control of what they perceive to have control over. And in fact, we're going to see throughout this chapter, they are going to become even more reactionary towards the coming messianic age, because as they see the Messiah coming, they know that their battle has been lost, yet they're still around until that final judgment. So rather than going peacefully, they're going to try to hold on and be kicking and screaming the whole way. So with all of that out of the way, I think it's time for us to move on into the chapter, beginning with verse 1. And as he came out of the temple one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So, to set the stage a little bit, what we see here is Christ is leaving the temple. And he's leaving the temple for the last time. And As he's passing out of the temple, one of his disciples looks back and marvels at the architecture behind them. How wonderful is the temple? And Jesus says to him, yes, the temple is wonderful. Yet, what is coming? Well, what's coming is utter destruction, where there will not be a stone upon another that will not be thrown down from these great buildings. And this sounds kind of harsh. Why would Christ make this prediction and just kind of leave it there? Well, if we remember what was happening in the prior chapter, in the chapter before, as Christ comes into the temple and as he's debating with the various leaders of the day, we see that something's rotten in the state of Denmark. We see that there's something that isn't right within the temple. The people don't have their priorities on straight. And you see that immediately in the beginning when Christ casts out the money changers and the people doing trade. The reason that he does that is because the priorities that are going on in the temple are not being aimed in the right direction. Their priorities, rather, are filling their wallets rather than repentance and remission of sins for the world. So rather than using the temple for what it was intended for, we see that it's being misused, and for that reason, its destruction will come. And that destruction isn't some wrath or vengeance, rather, it's the reality of sin. So again, if we talked about before, as we've talked about before, sin is basically the ramifications of our negative actions. So whenever we deviate from the way, whenever we do something that's wicked or evil, or even just bad in some lesser sense, well, all of those actions have uncountable reactions that come along and those can reverberate not only through our life but they can also affect the lives of others so as we see these continual reverberations of negative actions what happens is the very structure of our life can begin to become brittle and start to fall apart and that's what you see happening in the temple the temple is a building It's built with an intent, and that intent is for it to be a dwelling place of God. Yet, if that intent is not being met, if our actions do not match the words that we're saying, well, we're invalidating, in the sense, the space. You can't put God in the box. God willingly, in the Old Testament, chooses to be in the temple, in the same way that he willingly takes flesh and dwells among us in the person of Christ yet we need to realize that if we continue to do evil if we continue to participate in what we know is wrong or even if we participate in a wrong regardless of if we know or not what happens still is those actions have consequences And the consequences of those actions will continue to snowball until they lead to some form of destruction. So when the temple is destroyed, again, it's not God sending the Romans in to smite the Jews because they were bad. Rather, our actions, or the actions also of the people of that time, have consequences. And after there's an attempted revolt, what happens is the... Romans come in, and they destroy the temple. So this is what Christ is predicting. So moving along to verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign when these things are all to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, Take heed that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars or rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pains. So what we see here in this section is the beginning of Christ's prophecy. And Christ begins this prophecy by going out to the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives, as we talked about a few chapters ago, seems to be Christ's point of, uh, of congregation. It seems to be their home base. Yet, we need to also see here echoes of the book of Zechariah, Zechariah 14, where Zechariah has a prophecy of the coming Messiah. So the second coming is what we Christians interpret this as. But regardless, we see this messianic motif. We see this eschatological motif playing out. And that's already setting the stage for us to say, okay, everything that's coming is going to be apocalyptic in nature. And we also see this further fulfillment take place with the four individuals who are there. Because if we realize that Christ is the Logos, who in the beginning brought all in the creation, who is currently enfleshed in flesh and dwelling among us here in the Gospels, well, then we understand that if that motif exists of fulfillment, that is, of the same person being in the beginning, the middle, and the end, so he's also the coming one. Well, we as we see Peter, James, John, and Andrew, who were the first called in the beginning of this gospel account, we also see another echo of the eschaton. So these are basically motifs setting the stage here. The Bound of Olives is reminding us of Zechariah 14, where we see this prophecy of the second coming, this prophecy of the coming one. Yet, in bringing the apostles who were first chosen, we're also doing a callback to the beginning, the beginning of this gospel account, which reminds us that, hey, there's fulfillment taking place here. We need to realize that the words that are being presented to us have that apocalyptic fulfillment in their nature as all of Christ's words do. But that specifically is something that we see Mark, the evangelist, trying to draw our attention to. So he's basically telling us to be attentive by showing us all of these various motifs. And that attentiveness is continued to be expanded upon by Christ when he says, take heed that no one leads you astray. In this list that he gives of struggles that Christians are going to face, basically what this is, is a list of the realities that we are going to participate in if we are trying to live in this life in Christ. We're going to deal with minor hardships. There are going to be many who try to lead us astray. There's going to be a lot of things that vie for our attention and try to pull us away from... The path that we're called to go down is the path towards the life in Christ. And if that's the case, what Christ is telling us here is to be attentive. And in fact, this is the motif that he has throughout this entire chapter. He'll tell us, take heed, be attentive. And he'll capstone this entire chapter by telling us to watch. Because we don't know the time nor the season when the Son of Man will return. We don't know when the end will come. Yet as Christians, we're called to be participants in the end in a sense because we are living both in this age and the age that is to come. We are participants in the age that is to come while we are physically living in this age. So if we again remember that motif of the messianic age versus this age, we'll see that the hardships and the struggles and the evils that will suffer in this age pale in comparison to the fulfillment that comes in the messianic age, which the Saints who are seated in glory participated in not only in this life but are now eternally participating in in the life to come. Yet we see at the very end here where Christ lists off natural disasters, in line with, again, all of these hardships that will try to divert the attention of the faithful, that these are merely birth pains, or the beginning of birth pains. And what he means there is that before, well, before you actually give birth, although I don't know about giving birth from experience, (laughs) the labor pains come along. So... The pain means that the end is coming, but it's not there yet. The birth has not fully taken place. So in the same way, these struggles and these hardships that we deal with in this world are not the end. They're not that final hardship, and they're not that final joy, rather, of a child being born. That final joy that we're going to see of the second coming, of messianic king but what they are are reminders for us to be vigilant and to be attentive so all throughout the section this again is what christ is going to continue to draw our attention towards our attentiveness we need to be attentive so that way we don't fall from these minor annoyances these minor pains and i say minor not in that earthquakes and famines and Calamities are minor hardships, but rather they're minor in comparison to the torments that we're going to see the Christians of the first century and on suffer. Because we can't forget that from the very beginning of Christianity, there was martyrdom, there was witness, and that will be expounded upon further within this chapter. So moving on to verse 9. But take heed to yourself, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear testimony before them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you up, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver up brother to death, and the father his children. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. So within this section, we see a further expounding upon what's going to happen to the Christians. What's going to happen to all who decide to take on this life in Christ? If Christ had to die and to suffer, Christians are called to do the same. And if we look through church history, and if we look through the lives of the saints, what we can realize is that this isn't done in vain. This isn't done stupidly. You don't see people throwing their life away for no apparent reason, because martyrdom, and being a martyr, is paying witness. So we have to ask, okay, what is it that they are witnessing to? And what they're witnessing to is the gospel. So, if that good news must first be preached to all the nations that good news of what Christ has done, the victory of the messianic king over this age, well, there's no more potent example of that than the blood of the martyrs. And that might sound a little morbid at first if we're not accustomed to martyr stories. But in the witness of the martyrs, we see especially in the 1st century through the 4th century, this mass influx of people, who took up their cross, of people who became followers of Christ. Oftentimes, when people debate the historicity of Christianity, they neglect the reality that there were so many people within those first 400 years who willingly went off to their deaths. And if you have such a mass persecution taking place for such a long period of time, it seems you need to ask the question of why are these people doing that? And if you look at a lot of the accounts of the Romans at the time who were persecuting the Christians, you'll see even they're questioning why all of these people are just going off to their death. Because all they're being told that they need to do is apostatize. That is, all that they're being told they need to do is give up this Jesus that they pray to and pray to one of the pagan gods. And yet, when that comes up, when it's time for them to either spit on Christ or reject Christ or say that, no, I fully put on Christ and rather reject the idol that they're being told to worship, so many of these people rejected those idols and went off to their death. This is a stupid waste in the eyes of the culture of that time. Because again, all they're being asked to do is go with the crowd. And yet, one after another, they would offer their life. And as they offered their lives in their witness, the gospel spread. And as the gospel spread, more and more people followed that gospel message of taking on the responsibility of the world, of taking and shouldering the weight of hardship. And in doing so, we see this spreading of the gospel throughout the whole world. And we need to remember that even though Christ here is saying that brother will turn against brother, father against child, and children against parents, He's saying here that there's going to be this animosity that will grow between even close close family members when we're brought before tribunals, when we're brought before those who are going to persecute us, when we're brought before whatever hardship is coming our way, rather than freaking out and trying to figure out what it is that we're going to say. Christ says to be peaceful, to be still. Don't be anxious beforehand, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So if we strive for internal peace, if we participate in this life in Christ now, before the hardship hits us, then whenever we're in the trenches and whenever there's some calamity afoot or some struggle, That is assailing us. We know that we'll be able to be guided to do what we need to do. Rather than stressing beforehand about what we think we need to do. Now, I think oftentimes a verse like this is kind of misunderstood. Because oftentimes we look at a verse such as this where we see the Spirit's going to give us what we need in our time of need. And we think, okay, I've been baptized, so that means that I don't have to do any work in my life. I don't have to prepare for what could be coming on the horizon. I don't have to study for the test. I don't have to prepare for my interview, because the Spirit's going to give me what I need. Yet that is not the case. In fact, Christ is not saying that, if we're going to use a test metaphor— You're not supposed to study at all before the test. What he's saying is, again, if we're going to continue with this metaphor, do not cram at the last minute. Always be attentive. Always be vigilant. That, again, is the motif that we see throughout this entire chapter. Always be prepared because you don't know when you're going to need that information. You don't know when the hardship is going to come. And if you have put the work in throughout your life, and if you've set out to have this life in Christ and to foster it through your prayer life, through going to church, through reading the scriptures, and through ultimately building this relationship with Christ and your brothers and sisters in him, well then, when the hardship inevitably comes, you'll be able to weather that storm. Because you'll be given what you need. All of us are given what we need in our times of need. Yet, oftentimes, we become overwhelmed by anxiety. We become overwhelmed about thinking about all the details beforehand that we have no control over. And when the hardship comes, well, we're already underwater. Because we're drowning in all of that anxiety and all of that hardship. Yet Christ is telling us that we need to let go of the things we don't have control over. We need to offer them up, in a sense, to he who has control in the end. And through that willing sacrifice, through that willing self-offering, we will be given what we need. So moving on to verse 14. But when you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, to take anything away. And let him who is in the field not turn back to take his mantle. And alas for those who are with child and for those who give suck in those days, Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of the creation which God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not shortened the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christ and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, I have told you all things beforehand. So again, we continue to see this motif of calamity and struggle. And yet, in this section, we see that Christ is warning the people, That when that hardship is coming, when that disaster has transpired, they can't fall back into it. When the structure of reality or the structure of culture has crumbled, you have the choice to either fall into the mire or continue on and try to find some form of salvation, some form of stability to recreate the structure that has been lost. If we look again back at the temple, uh, analogy that Christ was making, in the beginning here, we see that the temple has lost something because of the actions of the people. And because of that, the structure has already crumbled, and it's just a matter of time until some storm comes and blows it over. And that storm happened to be the Roman Empire. In that same vein, as our societies crumble, as our worlds fall apart, there are some that will make it through and start that next society. There are some who will make it through and join other societies. But those are the elect who are not elect just in nature, but they're elect because They don't turn back. If we look all the way back to Genesis at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, as Lot is fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah with his wife and his daughters, his wife turns back, and she's turned into a pillar of salt. She turns back because she's still hung up on the place that she's left, even though that place was a den of debauchery. And because she couldn't move forward, because she couldn't look forward, she became the static pillar. She was stuck there because, mentally, she was already there to begin with. In that same vein, this is what Christ is saying when he's telling his apostles that when it's time to flee, go. Don't go back. Do not... Deal with. Do not come down from your upper room. Do not go back into the field. Just move forward. Why? Because the foundation has crumbled. The foundation of your society has crumbled. The foundation of your life has crumbled in some way. And instead of sitting there and being a further participant in that destruction, you need to move forward. And you need to move forward in love. But there's going to be great difficulty that comes along with that. There are going to be things that we see as natural which hold us back from that life of living, again, in this age versus being participants in the Messianic age. And when these storms come, well, they're going to again be there. Because as we see, pray that may not be in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation, which God created until now, and never will be. Pray that's not winter. Why? Because there will be an added layer of hardship. Yet, the immediate verse after that shows us that in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning. So, the overall society, the overall world, will fall into chaos. This is just an inevitability. Because, again, if we understand the apocalypse to be this three-part presentation, we're talking, again, of the apocalypse that has happened historically. We're talking of the apocalypse that is happening in the present we're also talking about the coming apocalypse that will always come and assail us. If we understand that there's this three-part nature, well then, we're not going to be hung up on trying to predict when is the calamity coming. Rather, we're going to be always preparing ourselves. We're going to be always preparing our souls. So that way, when that calamity comes, we're not going to turn around and stay in that chaos. Instead, we're going to try to find order ultimately rooted in Christ, ultimately rooted in the Spirit that's guiding us and giving us what we need. So that's what Christ is telling us here. And we see that those days are shortened, not because of human beings, but we see that it's shortened because of the mercy of God. Yet, immediately after that, we're reminded that False Christ will come. People who are offering us false stability in the middle of all of that chaos will always be present. And if we give ourselves over to them, well then we're just continuing again to fester in that chaos, to fester in that destruction. So we need to always be vigilant. We need to not give ourselves over to those who will give us easy answers out of these states because there's no such thing as an easy way of weathering the burdens offered to us in this life. That's the point of taking responsibility for not only our actions, but for the reality that we live in. If we are all participants in sin in some way, because again, all of our actions have... A whole cascading effect of reactions, then we all have some burden of responsibility to try to put the world in its proper order, to orient the world back towards its initial created intent. Because if we go all the way back to Genesis, we know that the human being, when we were created, was called to be not only a minister, so not only a priest, but a king and a prophet over creation. So in our prophetic ministry, we're called to look at the signs of the times, not to fixate on them and try to figure out when is the end coming, but so that way we can be ever vigilant and aware and attentive, so that way when calamity hits, we don't turn back and get stuck because it's too late. We're also called to be kings. So we're called to rule over the creation in a noble way. But we're also called to be priests. And in that priestly ministry, we're called to minister to creation. We're called to minister to not only one another, but we're called to minister to the world writ large. And in that ministry, in that noble rule... And in that prophetic gaze, what we're doing is being active participants in this messianic age. We're being active participants in these actions that are hopefully reunifying the world into the state it was intended to be from the beginning. That's what we are called to do. And yet, all too often, we'll get stuck, we'll get fixated will hold on to some aspect of life and miss the whole of what it is we're being called to do, of what it is we're being pulled to do. And when that's the case, well, what happens? Well, we get stuck, and when we're stuck, the world around us seems like it's utter chaos. Yet order comes from journeying onward order comes from moving forward in this journey that is our life. So rather than trying to find order in places where it doesn't exist, that is finding order through some guru or someone who's going to come in and say, if you do these small things, your life is going to be totally better. We need to realize that true order comes from participating in this life in Christ which is rooted in, honestly, a relationship. It's not rooted in some tyranny. Because as we continue to grow in this life in Christ, as we sacrifice the things that we don't need, so that way we can truly take on and take in the things that we need, we grow more and more into his image. We grow more and more into his likeness. And ultimately, we see not only our relationship with him deepen and grow, but we'll see our relationships with one another also deepen and grow. Because none of this happens in isolation. We don't just relate to God in a vacuum. We relate to God in the same way that we relate to one another. And through our relationships with one another... We ultimately relate to God. So it's through this participation in life in Christ that we will be able to make it through whatever hardships are assailing us, whatever hardships are coming against us. But we can't be tripped up by false prophets and false Christs. We can't be led astray by the temptations that are trying to hold us back. And that seems to be, at least to me, What is coming out of the section? So moving on to verse 24. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth into the end of heaven. So, if we remember about this motif of the Son of Man, it calls us back to the book of Daniel, where there is this prophecy of a Son of Man, or a creature like a Son of Man, who is seated at the right hand of God through the revelation of Christ, through the revelation of the second person of the Holy Trinity, we realize that Jesus, the Christ, is the Son of Man. And what we see here is that the world, in his second coming, will be put into this primordial state. The sky will be darkened. The moon will not give light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. If we remember the Genesis account, if we remember the creation narrative, there was utter darkness. The world was dark and void and in this state of primordial chaos before it was created. And yet in the beginning, we see the Logos. In the beginning, we see Christ. And the image that we have here is of Christ's light because when the sun comes in the clouds with great power and glory, then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and the ends of the heavens. So when the son of man comes, there is going to be this experience that is universal in nature. And if we've already seen this motif here in verse 24 through 25 of the sun being darkened in the world returning to that primordial state, the vision that we can see is that as the Logos comes, the light that he brings with him is so potent that it draws us all near to him. So all of the lights of the sky will be darkened in comparison to the light that comes with the Logos, the light that comes with Christ in the second coming, the Son of Man. And as we approach him, we will see that he is some ultimate ideal. And what I mean by that is oftentimes we hear Christ referred to as a judge. And that doesn't mesh most of the time in people's minds with the perception of Christ that we see in the gospel. Because how can Christ be a judge if he's not going around and condemning people left and right? We have this Western understanding of judgment that doesn't fully mesh with what is happening in the scriptures. Rather, Christ is a judge. Because he is the ideal human being. He is God and man. He is fully God and fully man. And if that's the case, he is at the pinnacle. In fact, if he's the creator of all, who in the beginning brought all into creation, in that original primordial chaotic state, well then, that shows us that even in the beginning, he reigns supreme. Even in the beginning, he had this nature of being the ideal. And yet, if we know anything about studying beauty, if we know anything about ideals, well, the fact that we hold ideals in themselves is a judgment. Because if we say that something is ideal, we're saying that we are lesser in comparison to it. So if Christ is the ideal human being, and we are going to be in the second coming confronted with him without the barriers and without the things that we experience in this age, well then, that ideal is going to be a judge. Because if we didn't set out our entire life to be participants in Christ and to be in this authentic relationship with him and one another, well then... When we are confronted by that reality, and when we are no longer able to hide ourselves from that reality, our experience of that reality will be either an eternal torment or eternal bliss. And that's not because Christ is sitting there with a gavel waiting for us to come through so he can go over our book of all of the bad things that we did and say, well, you go to heaven or you go to hell. That's not the narrative at all, but rather our heaven or our hell is the experience of participating ultimately in Christ and being a mesh back into the Holy Trinity, being brought into the heavenly kingdom. So if we are participating in this life in Christ now, we're laying the foundation so that way we'll be able to participate in the life to come. But if we are neglecting this participation in this life now, well, when it's forced upon us, that experience will not be pleasant. So moving along, because I think I'm lacking a lot of clarity in today's session, verse 28 from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender, it puts forth its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that it is near. At the very gates, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So, in the symbol of the fig tree, we see again that Christ is talking about the signs of the times. In the same way that the people know the summer is near when the fig tree is in bloom, when you see all of these signs and all of these wonders, you'll know that the end is near. But, as we've talked about again and again here in this section, the end is always near. We are always called to be vigilant. We are always called to be participants in this messianic age. And that's why Christ will say, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Oftentimes people misinterpret the section, and they say that the Christians of the early church were all wrong because they were told that the generation would not pass away before all of these things take place. So they were all waiting in vain for Christ to come, and yet after a generation or two goes by where Christ does not return, that's when we have to build all of these theologies. This isn't the case for our faith. Because when Christ says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away before all of these things take place he is telling us that this generation is not the one which he's been referring to this whole time. When he says that this generation, he's not referring to this age. Rather, he's referring to those who have fought the good fight, those who have taken on this life in Christ, who are being led by the Spirit, who are giving witness of the gospel. And we see that because Christ says that his word will not pass away, even though heaven and earth will pass away. So even the material and the immaterial pale in comparison to God's word. And if we're guided by his word, if we're guided by his logos, then we too will not pass away because we will be part of the generation of the Messianic Age. But if we neglect his word and if we decide rather to live for our own self rather than being brought into this inner fold, into this kingdom, governed by the Logos who in the beginning called all, including us, into creation, well then will be leading lives oriented towards destruction. So when heaven and earth pass away, that is when the material and even the immaterial begin to deteriorate, if we have not strived for something higher, then we too will experience that deterioration rather than that ultimate reunification. So moving on to verse 32, to finish this chapter. But of that day, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on watch Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. So Christ ends this chapter telling us to be attentive. He ends with the statement of watch. And the reason why he's telling us that we need to be attentive is because we're never going to be able to divine the time in which he's going to return. We're never going to be able to discern when the Son of Man will come. And we see something very interesting here in verse t- 32, and it's that not even the sun. Knows, but the Father alone. And people can get very confused here because they'll say things like, well, could, hey, it seems that the Son is separate from the Father in this regard. But the reason why the Son doesn't know is because Christ has two natures: He has a human nature and a divine nature. And those are fully interwoven, and those are fully experienced. Again, he is fully God and fully man, as we've talked about time and time again. Yet, if Christ willingly condescended, if Christ willingly took flesh and dwelled among us, well then, while he's in those confines, he's living the same experience that we live. So, if, in this moment, Christ doesn't know when he's going to come again, for only the Father knows. That's because he has willingly restrained himself, so that way he can have that same experience that we have. So when he tells us earlier not to be anxious beforehand, he is saying that as someone who is capable of experiencing anxiety. He's not just telling us, hey, don't do this natural thing, because, you know, that's bad for you guys to do, but I'm God, so it's okay. No, I have no experience in this. As we're going to see in the coming chapters, he's going to experience agony. He's going to experience hardship. He's going to experience the desire of his humanity to flee. And he will ask the Father for the cup to pass from him, the cup of his coming suffering. But what's important here is that we realize that ultimately, Christ takes up his cross. Ultimately, Christ dies for the life of the world. And that's because he was ever vigilant. He was vigilant for when the time had come. We don't see him go off to his passion immediately at the beginning of the gospel. Rather, he goes and ministers, and during that time, he is deciding when the time is right for him to go off to his passion. And as we remember from chapters prior, the minute that Christ defines that time, the minute that Christ knows that it's time for him to go to Jerusalem and the path has been set for him to go to his passion, he moves absentmindedly down that path. He's not going from town to town doing all of the healings that he did in prior sections. Rather, he has a mission, and it's time for him to move single-mindedly rather than absent-mindedly down that path so that way he can offer his life for the life of the world. So as Christ participated in that same vigilance that let him know that it was time for him to go and offer his life, we too are called to watch. But we're not called to watch in the sense that we're walking around and we're telling people, the end is nigh, I saw all of these signs, or I had this vision, and that revealed to me that the end is coming. You may have visions, you may have experiences of calamity, but that's not meant for you to, be u- to use as a cudgel against others. Rather, we're called to be attentive so that way we can do what is right when there's going to be overwhelming wrong assailing us. So way we can move towards Christ when everyone else is falling away. And ultimately, that's why we're told to watch because the calamity is always coming as well as we're always participating in some form of hardship. And in the past, if we look through history, we know that there's always going to be some form of hardship that will assail us. So we need to realize that when we talk about eschatology, the end times, from a Christian perspective, we're not talking about some prophecy of the destruction of this world ultimately. Rather, what we're talking about is the continual calamity that we experience in this life because of the fallenness of this world that will ultimately be taken away when Christ comes again and reunifies the world to him. That is ultimately why he's telling us to be vigilant. So that way when he comes again and we experience him as this judge, as this ideal human being, we will not be burned by that experience. We will not be burned by his love. But rather, since we put the work in in this life, the hope is that we will be able to be participants in that love and experience that as an endless joy. So thank you all for dealing with my ramblings this evening. And thank you all for listening. And until next time, I will talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to this session of Make His Path Straight, a St. John the Baptist Bible study. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming week, I invite you to take some time to read over the text we have just delved into to see for yourself the depth of meaning that can be presented to us. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for the study, links to the full list of pertinent books can be found in the description of the session. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in the Bible study, the Scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So, if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live a life that Christ calls us to live in the Scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End each Sunday for Orthros starting around 8.30 a.m. and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, no worry. I've also linked in the bio the Directory of Greek Orthodox Churches as a resource so that you can find Orthodox Churches near you. As always, thank you for listening, and may St. John the Forerunner give us strength as we all set out to draw near the Christ and make his path straight. Amen.